Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. And Jesus was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We never really doubt day by day that the sun will rise. There's a saying, we've discussed it before. You're familiar with it. Two things in life are sure, death and taxes. You know what? The sun rising is just as sure as death and taxes because death isn't sure for all of us. Some of us may live until Christ returns. And some of you figure out how to not pay taxes. So. <laughs> but the sun is going to rise day after day. We may, we may feel like the sun shouldn't rise. We may feel like if we were in control, then we would at least delay it for a couple hours, a few days of the week, or all of them. But for more than two million times, 
since its creation, it simply keeps on happening. Day after day after day. After devastating tornadoes, following catastrophic hurricanes, the sun keeps cresting the horizon day after day after day. And while we understand it in some small manner, we cannot fully comprehend how an object, an object that could contain 1.3 million earths and an object that weighs two octillion tons remains suspended in the sky or in space. Again, we can understand it, but good luck wrapping your mind around it and comprehending it. And add, it, add to it the earth, rotating on its own axis, yet has revolved around the sun some six or 8,000 times. Throw the moon into the equation or the other planets from our solar system, and our minds will nearly explode. God created all of this by speaking it into existence, and he upholds it by the word of his power. And if he can speak all of it into existence and uphold it faithfully, but by the word of his power, Speaking is fairly effortless. You all are having to listen to me do it for the next several minutes. Being coherent is a little more difficult, but speaking requires almost nothing. God has created it all. He's upholding it all by the word of his power. Because of that, we can rest in him and his faithful commitment to accomplish his perfect plan in us and through us. The kingdom of Christ will prosper victoriously, and as his people, we too shall triumph. In a very real sense, we already have triumphed. Though mysterious and though often slow, Grace does always grow. Growing grace is what I've titled this morning. And we will look in Mark chapter 4 at four short, pithy parables about the kingdom of God. And the point of them all, the thread that I'm going to attempt to weave through each of these short parables is this. Grace growing in the people of God, both individuals and collectively, often isn't witnessed or felt or sensed in a short period of time. But we can trust him. The sun keeps coming up. And the grace in you keeps working. It will keep maturing you until the day of Christ Jesus. These four parables, the first one, The location of the lampstand. Grace grows up and out. The second, the standard of measure. Greater grace is available. The third, the casting of the seed on the soil. Grace grows miraculously and mysteriously. And fourth, the parable of the mustard seed. Mission accomplished. The mission of grace will be accomplished. 
verses 21 to 23. Jesus was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? It's not brought, is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Two rhetorical questions back to back. The answers are no and yes. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Light is not given to us merely for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. That is, we are called to display the treasure that we have found. What God has done in us, he desires to continue working through us. Therefore, Based on Jesus' teaching here in this brief parable, we should avoid hiding the light of God's grace under an elaborate load of religious traditions or hypocritical actions. And those really are the only ways to hide his grace. What do you do with a lamp when you want to light up a room? When the electricity goes out, the storm rolls through, Or sometimes it just goes out without a storm. You light a candle. Do you put it under a bucket or under a basket or under a bowl? Why not? Why would you not put it under something? Because it defeats the purpose of lighting it if you're going to cover it. This lamp, this light of the gospel that God has shown into our hearts, the grace that he has dispensed into our lives is the light of the gospel. Christ, when he was here on earth, was that lamp. He was that light, and the darkness could not contain it. It shone forth everywhere that he went. We see it illuminating the pages of Scripture as we read them. And we now, as God's people, are called to be lamps and lights as well. Just as ludicrous as it is to hide a candle once lit, it is also absurd to cover or shade the light of the gospel in our lives with a load of human traditions or hypocritical actions. The purpose of light is for benefiting those in the dark. If the electricity goes out at midnight, there's only one reason that you light a candle. Because you want to see. If you don't need to see, there's no need to light it. The purpose of light is for benefiting those in the dark. Why has God shown forth the glory of his Son into our lives? In order that it might exude and show forth into the world in which he's called us to live. Now, we may be guilty at times of using that light to burn rather than to benefit. Thinking about it this way, the Second part of the question, a lamp is not to be put under a bed, is it? No. What would happen if you put the lamp under a bed? Adverse effects. It's going to burn. You're going to have more light than you anticipated (laughs) and a lot more heat than you desire. And I hope I'm not giving kids any ideas, but it's on you parents to sort that one, okay? 
In, in the early 2000s, I had the privilege to travel into the highlands of Ethiopia. And I was going to a friend's house. He had become a really close friend. He and his wife lived in a one-room mud hut. And there was no electricity in the village except in the evenings at 10 p.m. once it was really dark. The, uh, there was a generator for the entire village that would come on and each house was allowed one light bulb uh, that really, it felt like it was about um, three watts. <laughs> it was probably closer to 45, but it, it was right in the center of the room, a single bulb, and it came on from 10 to 12 p.m., 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. every evening. So two hours, and then the generator would go off and complete silence across the village and complete darkness again. Every house that I visited in that village, that one bulb was there, and it was right in the center. No one put it in the corner. No one put it under the bed. No one hid it out back. Every one of them right in the center to benefit from it. And that's part of the emphasis that Jesus is making here. He is the light of the world. And he is revealing himself day by day as he lived here on earth. But he's also called us to do the same thing. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen to what I'm saying. What, the life you see me living, live now in this way. This is the way you should move forward with your life, revealing the grace that has been shown to you. Now, if we mingle all the parables a little bit and and think about this one, along with sowing seeds that we considered last week and will again briefly this week as well, the point is this, we ought not only receive the truth but also share it. In fact, that was evident last week in the the fourth soil that the seed of the word of God went in and it brought forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. The same is true here with the light. When the gospel light impacts and it will also influence us. You can think about it With regard to corn, those of you who come this evening will have the privilege of eating an ear of sweet corn. You've all seen corn before. I'm sure some of you have planted corn before. Um, Corn, unlike other seeds, and peas are this way too, some of that way, but it's actually just a dry kernel. That's a seed. You drop it into the ground and it sprouts up. And the stalk produces usually a couple of ears, a primary and secondary one. And each ear of corn has about a thousand kernels. That's a lot of seeds. So we could say some 60, some 30, some 60, some 100, some some 100, some 1,000. But the point is, one seed went into the ground and a couple thousand other seeds are produced if we're just talking about the one stalk producing two ears of corn. Again, this is the point that Jesus is making with this brief parable. 
allow the gospel light that has shown in to also show forth into the lives of others that they too might be affected. And in fact, from the time that I was a kid, I suppose, I have thought about this parable mixed with the next one in a certain way. It's helpful enough for me to think about it um, that I'll mention it now. But in my mind, the candle, the, it, we are advised to not take the light and to put a basket over it. So I've always imagined that as a bushel basket. Some of you probably don't know what a bushel basket is, but you know what a five-gallon bucket is. So you can imagine a five-gallon bucket, and that works just as well. The point is, take the basket or the bucket off of the candle and then put the bucket or basket back down and put the candle on top of it. Now, there was a time in my life that for about six months, I used a five-gallon bucket as my bedside table. They work really well. You can, if you need to put stuff in it, you can turn it one way. If you need to put stuff on it, you can turn it the other way. If you need to use it for both, you're out of luck, unless you have a lid. But, but that's, the, that's the picture I get with reading this parable. Take the basket or the bucket off of the lamp, set the bucket down, and put the light on top of it. It gives it some height. It shows forth. It allows the light to go forth. Now, that works very well as we move into the next parable, which really is this measure, this standard of measure. The picture is a bushel basket. It is collecting grace by the bushelful. Look at verses 24-25. And Jesus was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, by your basket of grace, it will be measured to you. More will be given you besides, for whoever has to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. When I was in college, the gym that the football team worked out in was called the bank. It just had really large letters over the double doors that said B-A-N-K, bank. And it was called that because the coaches constantly reminded us, you get out of it what you put into it. And that is the point that Jesus is making here. He has dumped immeasurable loads of grace into our lives. And in doing so, he says to us, in essence, there's more. Don't hoard it. Don't dispose of it. Don't waste it. Use it. If you don't use it, you will lose it. You can imagine learning to play an instrument, a musical instrument, and getting fairly good at it, and then going a long period of time without practicing, unless you have an uncanny gifting. Your skill and your ability is going to fade or potentially disappear. Again, that's the emphasis Jesus is making here with this standard of measure. He's saying greater grace is available, but he's also saying it is available as a result of the diligence that you put forth. Diligence is expected in the Christian life. Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Has God not dumped immeasurable loads of grace into your life? Absolutely he has if you belong to him. To whom much is entrusted, much, to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. 
God expects us to be diligent with what he has given to us. All that we have is a result of his grace. And how we use that grace, that gift from him, determines how much more grace we will receive. Spiritual laziness is warned at in a very stern fashion, is warned against, pardon, in a very stern fashion in the scriptures. Listen to Proverbs 19.15. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If you lean on that grace, if you take advantage of that grace, if you put that grace to use serving Christ, more will be granted. We can think of it this way. Soul graces are increased by diligently using them. It's like muscles in our body. Exercising benefits them. J.C. Ryle said it this way, the more we do for our souls, the more God will do for them. And it's wonderfully encouraging to consider that according to Ephesians 1.7, God does not give to us from his riches, but according to the riches of his grace. The reason he can't give to us from his riches is because it would be depleting the riches of his grace in some way. And you cannot deplete a God who has infinite measures of grace. But he gives according to them. According to the infinite measures of his grace, he gives to each one of his people and to his people collectively. The hymn writer said it very well. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture when Abraham's servant asked Rebekah for a drink. He got a drink, and she watered the camels as well. Solomon's wish for wisdom, it was granted. But he was also promised riches and length of days. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. And Jesus goes a step further, demanding that she get something to eat. Or for you and for me, not only are we pardoned from our sin, but we are adopted into the family of God. Greater grace is available. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So tote around that big basket of grace, and live there. Make use of it, knowing that the supplies according to the riches that are in Christ will never be depleted. God will continue pouring grace into our lives. In verse 26 and following, grace grows miraculously. Jesus continues by saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. The picture is he gets up and he goes to bed. He gets up and he goes to bed. He gets up and he goes to bed. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. But the soil produces crops by itself, it seems. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, and when the crop permits, when it's at full maturity, he puts in the sickle because the harvest 
has come. Grace is as mysterious as it is miraculous. The kingdom of God is one of grace. While weeds may come from seemingly nowhere, and if you've ever cared about a flower bed or you've cared about a nice piece of lawn, you understand that. You don't have to plant those weeds. They'll come up free of charge. But real plants or good grass, it requires planting. If a weed comes up, no one wonders, I wonder where that, I wonder how that came up. But if you're standing along a sidewalk somewhere and you see a tomato plant, a seedling popping up, you don't wonder, hmm, it just came out of nowhere. You're thinking somebody on the fourth of, at the 4th of July picnic had a tomato slip off their sandwich onto the ground, the seed fell in, and now it has sprouted. We don't wonder where real plants come from. The seed has to go into the ground. And while we don't understand it completely, we know that apart from the seed going in, the fruit doesn't come up. The plant does not sprout. We could say it this way. Grace does not sprout from within. Grace is not in us naturally. It is implanted into us supernaturally. We are dependent, completely dependent on grace being implanted into our lives from without by the Holy Spirit. The apostle writing to the church at Corinth says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. That's what Jesus is picturing here in this parable. The man cast the seed upon the soil. He knew he had done that work. He had probably even cultivated the ground to some degree. But how how he himself does not know that the seed sprouted and grew. Now, we can, from a biological standpoint, attempt to explain that, and we understand the dynamics, but we also understand that we can't fully realize how, if you go back to what I mentioned before, A kernel of corn could contain a couple thousand other kernels through processes that we can't really comprehend. It's grace. And it applies to our lives, to the kingdom of God as well. Even if you were to try to argue that God has not been immeasurably gracious to you and has not dumped loads of grace... Let's just imagine, he's just giving you a little kernel of grace. What potential? Because it's grace from God, who is infinite. How he himself does not know. Literally, the original language says, while he was unknowing, or incomprehensibly, or even automatically, just out of nowhere. In fact, Jesus talked about new life happening in this very way, new life in his people. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't see grace falling from the sky. We don't necessarily see grace sprouting from our lives, but we see the effects of it. We see the effects of the Word's power. It's made evident when a life is altered for the glory of God, when he plucks us as a brand of a 
of burning and puts our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We don't see the process. We don't witness it typically step by step, but we see the effects of that. We see that person was headed happily to hell, and now they're serving Christ with their life. And we know that experientially, not just from watching others, but walking down those roads respectively ourselves if we belong to him. The soil produces crops by itself. Verse 28, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, and then comes the harvest. So sowing indiscriminately, like we considered last week, was an expectation, doesn't also include fretting over the results. Jesus here in the parable of the kingdom, again, is saying we have a responsibility to sow the seed. But then we can rest in him. And it's not just a passive encouragement for us to rest in him, but a real demand that we rest in him and stop fretting. Notice it doesn't say in verse 27, he goes to bed and tosses and turns all night. He goes to bed and sleeps like a baby and gets up the next day and he goes to bed And he rests in God and he gets up the next day and eventually the seed sprouts and grows. And it grows gradually. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Grace in our lives happens this way. But at each of these steps, from the time that the seed sprouts before we can see it above the soil, it is living. It's living and maturing at each point along the way. It's exactly the way grace works in us. When God begins to work in us and he puts new life in us, we are on a mission, if you will, of complete conformity to the image of Jesus. And everyone who has received that initial deposit of grace, which is... Faith and repentance is how it is exposed. Every single one who receives that grace will end up completely conformed to Jesus. Which ought to be an encouragement with regard to our own lives. No one fretted about the sun rising this morning. God was in control of it. Nor should you fret about the slow pace of grace in your own life. God is in control of it. He will accomplish it, but not just with regard to ourselves, with regard to one another. We don't want to push it along. Imagine taking a little seedling and think, it's only three inches according to the farmer's almanac. It should be six inches this week. I'm going to pull it up three inches. That's not the way we should run around encouraging each other in grace. There are things we can do to encourage in grace, but it's from the root Each stage is noted here. Each stage is important. Each stage is a mark of life. We must avoid the warning that we heard in Zechariah 4. We must avoid despising the day of small things, recognizing that it is not by might or power, but by the Spirit of God. Realizing that grace, like everything else, must have a beginning. It is absolute absurdity to despise the acorn just because it's not an oak. 
It contains the potential for an oak. And if grace is given and is cultivated and is used, it will turn into an oak. The seed of the gospel contains in itself the potential and the power and the guarantee for growth and finality. The farmer is confident as he goes to bed each night in the inevitability of the seed's progression. And the growth of plants cannot be forced. In the same way, the kingdom of God is unstoppable by unbelief and unhelped by human effort. God has promised to establish a kingdom. And Christ is king of that kingdom. And he will have his way. But when the crop permits, verse 29, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, when we hear these parables, we think, as we're intended to do, immediately with regard to the agricultural references. But remember, Jesus is talking about a kingdom. And there's encouragement here in verse 29 with regard to lives the lives of God's people, especially being harvested. Harvest happens when the fruit is ready. Harvest happens when the life is is ready. God never, ever removes his people until the time is right. He doesn't remove his people just because it doesn't feel right or because it will be hard to some. He never removes his people until the time is exactly right. He never takes his children until their work is done. Not when we think it's done, but when he knows it's done, then he harvests his own. No child of God has ever died at the wrong time. The great farmer never harvests too soon. He never plucked one too early. There's no chances, no accidents, and no mistakes about the death of any of God's children. He knows best when they are ready for the harvest. And we can trust him. The kingdom of God is like, here in this third parable, a man who casts seed on the soil. He goes to bed, and he gets up, and he goes to bed, and he gets up, and he goes to bed, and he gets up, and the seed sprouts, and it grows. And grace is like that in our lives. We ought to be able to rest in God because his grace is at work in us, maturing us and making us like his son. And the last of the four, the parable of the mustard seed, potentially the more familiar of these four. How shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And he said, he's musing out loud to himself, Jesus is, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? Or we could hear him saying this, how can I encourage you all? How can I encourage a little flock whose shepherd is to be rejected and despised? 
Or how could he encourage us as a little flock whose shepherd was rejected and despised, the great shepherd Christ? What Jesus, the truths that Jesus emphasizes here in the parable of the mustard seed, the truths are true for an individual believer, and they are true for the church as a whole, for all of God's people. The point is that the kingdom of God has a deceptive insignificance. The microscopic mustard seed, on the one hand, could be easily dismissed as inconsequential. But the parable is not comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. That's not the comparison that's being made. The comparison that's being made in the parable is what happens to that mustard seed. It doesn't remain a mustard seed. It is transformed from microscopic to 12 to 15 feet in height. Still a garden shrub, but stretching forth its branches so much so that the birds of the air can find a home there. Now, in case you're ready to write off the entirety of the veracity of Scripture based on the phrase smaller than all the seeds, knowing that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world, it's probably helpful to know that not only is this a parable, Jesus, Jesus is also using hyperbolic language and a proverbial statement among the Jews who were not listening for him to make a biological, factual statement, but listening for him to talk about something that they considered small and insignificant. And that's what the mustard seed did in that society. It represented something small and insignificant. And so Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's not like something small and insignificant. It's like what happens to something small and seemingly insignificant in that it grows. The emphasis is on the contrast between the tiny seed and the huge shrub. The emphasis is on the difference that the grace of God makes. What exists in the small seed, what exists between the small, tiny seed and the mature, large plant is time. Grace upon grace, day after day. It's remarkable, really, that Jesus answers his own question with the mustard seed. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Not like a raging hurricane, not like an invading army, not like a rumbling avalanche, not like a swarm of bees. But it's like a mustard seed being sown upon the soil, though incredibly small. When it is sown, it grows and grows and grows and becomes larger than all the other garden plants. So much so that it resembles a tree and the birds make their home there. Here's what Jesus is saying. Quiet and steady is the method of the kingdom. And not only that, but the end, it's not just quiet and steady along the way. The end is triumphant. (laughs) The process, it's not brief, it's not swift, but the end is triumphant. Not altogether unlike our Lord's life, born in a manger, feeble and frail, poor and unknown, appointed apostles, that were not noblemen or educated, but fishermen and tax collectors, eventually crucified, 
among criminals, forsaken by most of his disciples, betrayed by one, denied by another. His beginning, the church's beginning, the kingdom of Christ's beginning, insignificant and small, microscopic. Yet it grew. At Pentecost, when 3,000 were added, another 5,000 shortly after, then at Antioch and Ephesus, again at Corinth and Rome, it continued widening across the west through Europe, stretching south into Africa, eventually sailing to the new world, our world, and continues its its expanse as the gospel is proclaimed and lives are won for Christ. It's our prayer that this kingdom extends even this afternoon as those go out sharing the gospel, that the kingdom will advance yet again, quietly but surely, taking another step forward as Christ sits on the throne ruling and reigning. It will continue. The kingdom of God will continue being built and the gates of hell, according to the lips of our Lord, will not overpower it. One clear point of the parable of the mustard seed is this, victory and triumph. Christ is a victorious king and his kingdom is a triumphant kingdom. The picture in these parables... The lamp lights the area. Copious grace is granted. The harvest comes. The small seed becomes a tree-like shrub. And Jesus says, again this week, as he did last week in our text, we should hear. If anyone anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Take care, he says what you listen to. With many such parables, verse 33, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. We should hear and listen. We must be careful what we listen to. We must keep coming to Christ and listening closely in order to understand and grow appropriately. Even his own disciples here, he's speaking again in an intentional, obtuse way, a way that's not easy for everyone to understand. But he takes his disciples aside, and as they continue peppering him with questions and wanting to know more, he explains the details to them. Take care how you listen. Why would Jesus say, take care how you listen in the midst of these parables? Remember what he's emphasizing in these parables. The necessity of us as his people resting in him and the triumph of his kingdom, of his grace working in us. If you are not resting in Christ and his finished work, you are not listening well. If you are anxious, overwhelmingly anxious about life, you aren't listening well. 
If you're often impatient, you aren't listening well. If you find yourself fretting, you aren't listening well. If anyone who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. Not only should we listen and listen well to God in his word, we must also, as we're listening and the grace of God is getting in, let the word shine forth, trusting God to accomplish his will, being faithful to sow the seed of truth, resting in God, believing that victory is his and it is sure. Of all that God is accomplishing in our lives and throughout the world, it is all happening through the means of his word. He has ordained that everything happened through his word being lived on, believed, and proclaimed. We can rest Spiritually rest in his commitment to accomplish his purposes. When we wonder about sharing the gospel with a friend or family member, when we wonder, will they listen? We can rest in him. He's the answer to any anxiety. When we really long to help them see and know the truth, and we fret, I just want them to see it. I want them to hear it. Resting in him is the solution to our fretting. When we're overwhelmed with the state of the world around us, when we're overwhelmed with the state of our soul within, resting in him is the source to fighting discouragement without and within. From the perspective of God, And according to his grace, there are no hard cases, not out there and not in here. His grace is sufficient to accomplish his purposes, and his grace always grows. God is always growing grace in his people. As sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning, God will be growing grace in you. If you're his, and you can bank on that. If you're not his, you too will be harvested. Listen from Revelation 14. There's a double harvest coming in the future. The Apostle John records, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped that is the reaping of all of God's children to come home with him forever and then verse 17 of Revelation 14 and another angel came out from the temple which is in heaven And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather from the clusters of the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The harvest is coming. The harvest of your life is coming. And you have the wonderful privilege 
of trusting in Christ to be sure that you're part of that growing, gracious kingdom, both now and forever. God will grow grace in you. Repent and turn to him. There is so much grace to be had. Come to Jesus and find rest for your souls, and then keep on resting, believer. Day after day, as the sun rises and the sun sets, God is growing grace in you and will cause every one of his children to be completely conformed to the image of Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that you will take the truths as they are in Christ Jesus and implant them deep within our souls, that it would bring about fruits in keeping with repentance, that you would indeed make us increasingly like our Lord. God, give us grace upon grace and be merciful to us. Show us your love and help us as we seek to honor you in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.